watchers in the fourth dimension. Well, a McCrimmon never died without a fight yet. Craig Adua! I conjecture that these were orders given by some person in authority. It's a great pity you're not a prince. You'd have made rather a good one. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And when is a door not a door? When it's a jar. <laughs> this episode, we're off somewhere where the show has never taken us before, outside of the confines of space and time, and into a land of fiction. It's one of the very first Doctor Who stories that I ever saw, and it's The Mind Robber. The idea for this story came from the creator of the soap opera Crossroads, Peter Ling. Off the cuff, he happened to remark to story editor Derek Sherwin and assistant story editor Terence Dix that soap opera characters were often treated like real people by fans of the show. Sherwin commented that this might make a good concept for an episode of the show, and Ling put together a proposal that was initially called The Fact of Fiction. The initial commission was for six parts, and had by this point been retitled to Manpower, which was then truncated down to four parts. During writing, Ling became aware that Victoria would be leaving the show and that the story would have to feature a newer companion. Not knowing her name yet, he used Zoe as a placeholder, and Sherwin and producer Peter Bryant liked the name enough to make it permanent. In Ling's original scripts, the TARDIS broke up after passing through a magnetic storm, the Master's foot soldiers were monstrous, faceless entities, and were originally the ones who posed the puzzles and the riddles to the Doctor and his friends. Sherwin suggested changing these monsters to toy soldiers, and he wanted to delay their appearance to the end of the episode, so he suggested that a group of children pose the riddles instead. It was also Sherwin's idea that Gulliver would only speak in words that he was given in Jonathan Swift's original novel. The four episodes of Manpower were intended to be the last story made as part of the fifth production block of the show, but, like its predecessor, The Dominators, it would be held over to be broadcast as part of season six. As problems arose with the Dominators, and if you haven't already, go and listen to our previous episode for all of the goss on that one, it was decided to give Manpower an additional episode. Scripts by Peter Ling would form episodes two through five, and Derek Sherwin was given permission to write the new first episode, and it had to be one that would require minimal sets and minimal extras. So Sherwin set this in the TARDIS console room and in a white void, and leveraged robot costumes that were previously used in an episode of Out of the Unknown. Gotta cut those costs. In April 1968, the serial was given its final title of The Mind Robber, and very shortly before filming, Patrick Troughton was quite upset when he had learned that the first episode was effectively going to be just the three leads, so himself, Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury. He was nearing the end of 46 weeks of filming and was absolutely exhausted. While he had already signed on for a third season of the show, it was something that he had very nearly turned down owing to that exhaustion. Brian was sympathetic to his concerns and it was agreed that all five episodes of The Mind Robber would be cut down by five minutes in order to ease the burden of filming. And then as a final hitch in this one, as rehearsals began for episode two, Fraser Hines came down with chickenpox, which rendered him unavailable for recording. The script already had a scene where the Doctor had to arrange pictures of Jamie's face in order to bring him back to life. Thinking on the fly, Sherwin hastily rewrote parts of episode two and three to allow the Doctor to get the puzzle wrong and come up with an in-story reason to temporarily recast Jamie with Hamish Wilson in the role. Now, before we move on, 
couple of notes on the people behind the scenes. Directing this one, we have the very first outing in the director's chair of David Maloney. He had actually previously been production assistant on five Hartnell era stories. And he will go on to direct a further nine Doctor Who stories after this one, including the legendary serials of The Genesis of the Daleks and The Talons of Wang Chiang. He also worked on the closest thing the classic Doctor Who ever had to a sister show, Blake Seven. Our creative team for this serial has the final appearance of Martin Bohr as costumer, along with the epically named Evan Hercules as designer. Hercules also worked on Adam Adamant Lives, Cat Weasel, and yes, Don, he did work on Zed Cars. Finally, we return to stock music for the few moments of this story that actually use music. And with all of that out of the way, we move on to our short summary, which Don has the privilege of presenting this episode. Take it away, Don. The TARDIS explodes, and the crew find themselves trapped in a mysterious place of riddling children, mythical creatures, and books you can literally lose yourself in. Jamie gets a temporary makeover, and Zoe defeats a superhero, from the distant future of, oh god, 21 years ago. All the while, the Doctor does his best to turn out a rather insistent job offer to become the new master of the land of public domain fiction. <laughs> Excellent. With that, let's talk about this one. Before we get going, I need to admit something. In my summary of The Dominators, I complain about a lack of screen time for Zoe, and I was listening back to my summary of Wheel in Space, I also complained about a lack of screen time for Zoe. So, uh, folks, apparently I've fallen in love with Zoe and I wasn't even aware of it. (laughs) Well, we will get to it in due time, but there are moments in this story where it's quite easy to fall in love with Zoe. Yeah, in the the first episode, too. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what I was getting at. We start this one coming in straight from the end of The Dominators. With what has practically become an additional member of the TARDIS crew, the bubble machine. Yay! (laughs) The legendary BBC foam machine. Yes. (laughs) I do love it when we have continuity between stories. Obviously, they can't do it every time because when do they sleep? And one of my favorite lines, reality is getting too hot anyway. (laughs) It's fun. It's silly. And I love quick little quips like that. If you can't take the heat, get out of reality. Exactly. As usual, Jamie pointing out the obvious of, hey, we're about to die because of the lava, so maybe we should do something about that. Mm-hmm. I really like what they do with that. I mean, you've got elements of the TARDIS that are very Whittakerian, the fluid links and the mercury vapor. I love the model work of the TARDIS being smothered in lava. I mm-hmm. thought that was very mm-hmm. cool. I just, I really like how this one starts out. The only thing I didn't like about it was I really noticed the, I'm just going to call it the TARDIS wallpaper. Mm. Or instead of having the real round things on a set, you can tell it's just a printout or a painting or however they did it. And that's been around since the very beginning of the show. But equally, it wasn't designed to be seen on our glorious big widescreen TVs. I think it was probably a lot harder to tell in a grainy 12 inch TV in 1968. I don't doubt that at all. But this is the first time it really sort of leapt out at me. Yeah, that's not something that will make it into color. But then we get Jamie and Zoe being distracted by what I'm going to call fake news on the TARDIS TV screens. (laughs) I love how weird this one gets. The first weird thing is Zoe changing into the sequin outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Sparkling catsuit. That is, I believe, her first costume in her one-woman show on the Vegas Strip. (laughs) I thought she was like, if this Doctor Who thing doesn't work out, I can go and work on Avengers. It'll be fine. I'll just go ahead. (laughs) There's plenty of that, this story, for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
I love how they did that play with the bagpipes and the view of Scotland and all that. And when we get further into it and you see the, the shadow of the highlands and everything, I thought that was so well done. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, though, is that Jamie says there's a warning system for if they have landed anywhere dangerous. And on the viewer, it shows them Scotland. Well, we learned later it's a... a play to you know lure them outside of the TARDIS. I kept thinking about the TARDIS warning system of showing them places <laughs> that are better than where they are. Yeah. <laughs> like we got in the wheel in space. Yes. yes. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's all. <laughs> go go here instead. The worst system ever. I I don't understand. It looks nice outside. Just leave. <laughs> Just <Yeah>. run. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I know Zoe's from the future and everything, but you have the rolling highlands of Scotland and then you have a city. I'd rather take the highlands, please. Thank you. The highlands comes with its own bagpipe soundtrack, whereas the city doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that. It's the city that Zoe was brainwashed in, if we yes. think back to, to the wheel in space. <laughs> oh, the good memories she must have. She must yeah. miss it so. Where they stripped her of her emotions and turned her into a logic machine. Ugh. <sighs> uh, Let's not let that bring us down. We're enjoying this first episode. Yes. So they get lured outside. They go out there and it's really Zoe first, if I remember correctly. Yes. It is. mm -hmm, And Jamie chases after. And then we have this wonderful bit of where the doctor is basically in the TARDIS and having this battle with himself. And it's just an interesting thing that he has to do while Jamie and Zoe are lost in the nothingness or I don't know what else do we call it, just nothingness. Do you mean when he's hearing the voice of what mm-hmm. will eventually be our antagonist? Do you ever notice that all the Doctor Who bad guys need a lozenge? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some wonderful overlays and visions. That point where you've got the Doctor being kind of tempted by Jamie and Zoe in their inverse costumes, beckoning him oh, out. Oh, that was and so clever. And they're looking was happy so and smiley and it's overlaid with Zoe's scream. That was so cool. That was my highlight. I mean, right there, that actually like my, my creepy factor. I just felt creepiness all over. I'm like, whoa, that is nice. That is so good. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, hearing the disembodied whispering voice, it really reminded me almost of the great intelligence. Mm hmm. Except better. Yeah, smarter. (laughs) This would have been one of the intelligences that would have made fun of the great intelligence. Yeah. I don't need to tout how great I am because I already know it. I also thought that the white TARDIS prop was really, Mm -hmm. really cool. I would have liked to have seen that used again. Yeah, I mean, that was that's exactly what I was about to mention. I the visuals in this first episode, I absolutely adore. And I think they it just the direction, they just nail every single bit to make you feel completely uncomfortable. Yeah. And then Jamie has a dream about a unicorn. So that means he's a replicant, right? What was actually really clever about that is finding out that they had written the four other episodes and then they went back and had to write a new first episode. The fact that they were like, we need to somehow tie these together. So they had him have that nightmare of a unicorn and oh, hey, spoiler alert, that kind of happens in the next episode. I thought that was a clever thing to do to Mm -hmm. tie them together. Yeah. And this extra episode didn't feel like filler. No. It was just good, creepy atmosphere. Yeah, sets the mood. Yeah. I would like to think it is the uh, first episode of Doctor Who that was directed by David Lynch in spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Just needs more whooshing noises and sounds. This had some of the more clever either set design and then the camera work. 
it is a lot better than I've seen in previous episodes. So yeah, I think they they went for it. They went all out and they hit most of the marks. It's impressive. I mean, you can tell that David Maloney is a good director and it's certainly no coincidence that he goes on to direct some of these stories that are considered to be all-time classics of the show. Yeah, I'm with you. Episode two? No, no, we're not there yet. (laughs) Dude. Oh Oh my goodness. So the TARDIS explodes, and more importantly, uh, we get Zoe on the on the console. <laughs> just just <laughs> oh saying. <my> God. <laughs> yeah, we do. Oh, man. Hey, you've been lusting after Jamie for two seasons. <laughs> yes. Just give us this one, Julie. <laughs> my notes say, ah, one for the dads. <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. Oh, boy. I think the way it ends is so eerie you've got jamie and zoe clinging to the console the doctor his eyes closed just spinning round slowly in nothingness and then the console spinning down into the fog it's it's wonderful that was one of my big highlights from a camera work perspective how they did that whole shot and then the black background it, it, it was just so clever the ending itself really surprised me because i think 99 times out of 100 if if that's written, you're going to end with the cliffhanger being the TARDIS explodes. Mm-hmm. But they have like another two minutes of, you know, them clinging to the console. And it's weird. And then the doctor kind of spinning around. And it's rather than ending on the exciting note, it's the creepy and weird note. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And before we move into episode two, I do want to ask, because I forgot to ask at the beginning. Julie, I, I obviously know you haven't seen this one before. And this is a story... I've probably seen more often than almost any other story. Don and Riley, had you guys seen this one before? I had seen this one before, but it was, I believe, four or three years ago. Okay. Yeah, I saw it probably longer than that. But yeah, I had seen this before. Okay, cool. Episode two, which starts with much longer than usual recap. So they really were trying to stretch out time here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've done the, the console thing. And then all of a sudden we hit Jamie, right? Yes, he is suddenly in in a forest kind of thing. Yes. Yep. Uh, we find out kind of what it is later. And he sees redcoats and screams out some, you know, Gaelic nonsense. <laughs> and I thought it was wonderful. Of course he did. <laughs> Jamie has no concept of the element of surprise. <laughs> nope. None whatsoever. <laughs> but then gets turned into a cardboard cutout. I think what he shouted was Gaelic for, I'm going to stab you now. If that's okay with you, please don't shoot me. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, do you now have that cardboard cut out in in your condo? I mean, getting things shipped is taking a little bit longer because of COVID, Mm. so it's not here yet. (laughs) When all that's over, we can all play pin the face on the Jamie and it'll be great. (laughs) I don't want to play pin the face on the Jamie against Julie. She'll always win. (laughs) That's true. She's got the face memorized. I mean, I'm not going to lie. When the doctor was like choosing out the facial features, I was like, that's so wrong. The game was a bit rigged, too, because his features weren't actually there to be picked. I imagine Julie was like a a person in the audience of The Price is Right when the doctor is up there doing that, screaming like, no, no, that one, that one over there. Outstanding. While I think that Zoe's doing better in in these episodes i almost decided to do a zoe scream count because she does scream a lot no 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 if if we it's too late now but if we did another metric you have to count the number of times that someone tells jamie to shut up 
<laughs> at minimum, it averaged out through this serial to about once per episode, but it, sometimes it's multiple times within one. And it's almost that many times where they should have listened to Jamie. Yes. <laughs> so, Jamie is a cardboard cutout. Zoe kind of gets trapped and then falls. Or was she? did she actually fall? She takes a door she, to she... a pit mm-hmm. while our bad guy monologues into a TV. <laughs> Yeah, they do a good job at hiding who it is. And he has that harsh and kind voice, much like the great intelligence did. So I really think that they were perhaps trying to do that that kind of bait and switch of, I, of I, getting people to think it was the great intelligence. I have I have thoughts that we'll get once we <laughs> near the end of, of this. Okay. We finally catch up with the Doctor, who is being hunted by the toy soldiers, and he has to go and find Jamie and Zoe. I'm going to say it. I feel kind of bad for the toy soldiers because the dude in the TV room, he is such a micromanager. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Look in that direction. Turn like, dude, let me do my job. Can you just go and write something seriously? <laughs> Before we find Jamie, we get some additional characters. We get the character who is, we know who it is because we've seen the entire serial, but in the credits at this point is only referred to as a stranger. I mean, I wrote down a random English sea captain because <laughs> I got enough out of it where I was like, this is what it is. And since I've never actually read Gulliver's Travels, I wouldn't be able to recognize any of the words. Yeah. I mean, he speaks very strangely to, to a modern audience. I loved him. He has a great voice, doesn't he? He was amazing. I was sitting there. I was like, I don't know that he's actually adding too much, but just the addition of him of how weird and out of place he was and yet he was helping the doctor, but it, he wasn't outright saying like, oh, I'm helping you. Like, it was just, it was really cool. That was Bernard Horsfall, who we will see a few more times in the show, including in some absolute classics. And yes, Don, he was in Zed Cars as well. Ooh, Bernard, good for him. <laughs> <laughs> so after our first encounter with a stranger, we also find a wild group of children, slightly posh children. They were kind of terrifying. Yeah, they were. And they're throwing riddles at him, holding a sword at his throat before he gets a dictionary. The surreal nature of the story hasn't decreased in this episode. We're still, It still feels very surreal. I think the fact that when we're talking about what we discover that the forest is, the sets in this story look intentionally a little, a little cheesy and not quite real. Yeah. And I think it's on purpose. Because it just it adds to that what is going on here kind of vibe. I, I love it. I think so too. I mean, they know that their sets are done on the cheap and this is the first time that they can just run with it and, and allow that to play out on screen. Shall we move on to the doctor taking care of Jamie? Yes. <sighs> yes. Go on, Julie. I know you have thoughts. Knowing what happened behind the scenes, I actually think that was a really good thought on the fly. Just being like, you know what? Let's let's change the face and have someone else play him. But man, was it tough uh, to watch that. <laughs> it was. I mean, don't make Gary wrong. I think he did a, a phenomenal job with their probably like last minute, like, hey, you need to pretend to be Jamie. Let's go do this. But I thought he, you know, it was well done. I still, it cringed a few times. And the doctor looked up his kilt again when he's pushing him up onto the letters that we then find out are letters. Uh, so yeah. Incidentally, I know it might not have been what was under Jamie's kilt, but I did find out that apparently Fraser Hines always wore 
football shorts or soccer shorts, as you Americans mm-hmm. would say, under the kilt. Because when he was off camera and kind of relaxing between takes, he would play a little bit of football, which I always thought was pretty <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, I, you know, looked up on Frater Hines a little bit. And yeah, he was really big into football. So I'm not surprised. All right. So we have Hamish Wilson coming in as Jamie. Sad little tidbit. He died in March last year of COVID. Oh, that's man. very sad. He'll never get to hear this episode. yeah other reasons obviously (laughs) trying not to bring this show down with news like that but that's very true (laughs) and he was actually scottish unlike fraser hines so we we finally have a real scott playing jamie i i do want to say before you move past this i thought this whole concept of having a a different actor do this was handled in in such a very clever way Because we've seen so many times where someone will have the week off and they'll just be, okay, well, they're captured, they're in prison, here's maybe an insert shot of them. And this is the one time where they just kind of roll with like, oh, well, he looks like this now, sounds different too, let's go. Yeah. Just brilliant. Basically, you could only go all in or you you wouldn't be able to pull it off. Yeah. And they did. As funny as it would have been to have them carrying around the cutout of Jamie. (laughs) 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 That would have been hilarious. So we also find Zoe, which leads us into Riley's little introductory quote, when is a door not a door? A door. <laughs> it's kind of like the riddles in the dark and Lord of the Rings. It's where mm-hmm. it's just a play on words. And yeah. it's fun. Yeah. I love it. So once we get Zoe back, I love how the doctor doesn't initially admit that he got Jamie's face wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. It's kind of sidesteps and is like, yes, this this is a thing that happened. Like I said, to be fair, the parts of Fraser Hines' face weren't there to be put on there. It was a setup. It was a setup. <laughs> As we find out more and more about this world, we find that it's a forest of words or a forest of sayings, idioms, and we meet the stranger again, who gives them away to the toy soldiers, which leads us into our cliffhanger with Jamie's nightmare coming true. White unicorn! Is there any significance to the fact that it's a unicorn and it's Jamie, considering that the unicorn is the official national animal of Scotland? He didn't know to call it a unicorn. (laughs) Well, I don't know when it became the official animal, though. So I don't, uh, official national animal, I don't know, but. I did not know that. Anthony! Yeah, brush up on that. I apologize. He's too focused on the Welsh (laughs) to think about the Scottish. That's fair. I think there's probably a little bit of that, but I think they're also just partially playing into the whole, this is all fiction. Right. It's a possibility that they threw that in there for that. And in television and media, I've seen a whole bunch of unicorns. They did a good job making that horse into a unicorn. Oh, yeah. It's good makeup work on that on that horse. Yeah. Which leads us into episode three. And the resolution to that is surprisingly quick. Kind of has to be because... It's almost going to run them over. But fake Jamie does a good job of panicking. He does. I really like how there's almost a mutual appreciation that's happening between the master and the doctor. I think that's absolutely delightful where they're complimenting each other, but the doctor can't hear the master. And of course, for anyone listening who hasn't seen it, no, it's not that master. He comes later. (laughs) (laughs) I love when we get Jamie back and immediately he's like hey i have something to say and nobody listens to him yet again (laughs) but we get him back by a repeat of the same thing where he sees the red coat 
completely telegraphs his attack again. There's that, and then I love when the doctor's going to choose the facial features, and Zoe's like, no. No. (laughs) I was rushed. See, I know Don said that his facial features were not on the original game board, but in my headcan, I believe the second doctor has facial blindness. (laughs) I love how Zoe also, at this point, figures out what happened and takes him to task over it. Oh, absolutely. And then that leads us into our next myth. We we come across a labyrinth. An actual labyrinth where the other one, what I thought was a maze, was not a maze. No. Anyone who knows their classical mythology knows where this is going. What lies within a labyrinth? David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> In tights. Which would probably explain why Zoe's wearing the cat suit. I'm just saying. <laughs> Where's the baby? <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> Zoe obviously reminds him of the babe. <laughs> so, Anthony, do the English, is we say Minotaur. Minotaur? Minotaur, yeah. Minotaur, okay, all right. I'm used to Minotaur, but Minotaur works. Yep, that's how we would pronounce it. And, of course, we very quickly get the, the classic split em up routine with Jamie staying behind with the ball of twine and the Doctor and Zoe going into the labyrinth and then Jamie kind of being menaced by the toy soldier. So very classic. It's an interesting thing too, though, because in one hand, you know that there's a monster. You would think so anyway. And Jamie would be the person you would want to face a monster. He fights. But also at the same time, I guess you can't leave Zoe behind because you can't leave the girl behind. Plus the girl's smart. Not that Jamie isn't. I'm not trying to insult Jamie, but Zoe is smarter than Jamie. And it's a labyrinth. Yes. But then we find out that the Minotaur, like the Macra, doesn't exist. So it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and then the soldiers, toy soldiers come upon Jamie. Was it him who was covering it with a cloth? Yeah. Yeah, he covered it with with his coat or... With his coat vest thing that he has? Not as killed. Not as killed. (laughs) Yeah. Which... I mean, buys him a little bit of time, but the robot eventually figures out it can just lower its head and shake it off. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I have arms. I I mean, you know, it's a little silly, but I still love it. I think it was meant as a distraction so he could block it and then get away and go and climb up the tower in Rapunzel's hair. It's just funny that it happened with Daleks. It happened with the um, Quarks. And it's happened with these toy soldiers. It's just an interesting trope that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. So we've had the Minotaur. We've got Jamie being menaced by toy soldiers. And the stranger appears again. And finally, we find out who he is. That cemented the fact that this was a land of fiction for me. Mm -hmm. I was kind of leaning towards it already. But that was the, yep, Gulliver. Yep, we're done. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he can only speak the words from the book. I think that's a seriously cool concept. I love it because they still are able to make it work within the context of what's going on in each scene that he's in. Yeah, it kind of fits, but it's also slightly off-putting. Yeah. And that that mixture is what really makes that work. Absolutely. I wonder who like knew Gulliver's Travel well enough or who was tasked with, hey, go find us <laughs> quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oi. I'll just use the inter- Oh no, it's 1968, I can't! I have to do it by hand! (laughs) It was Derek Sherwin's idea, so I I really hope he didn't make poor Peter Ling (laughs) just (laughs) pour through Gulliver's travels to try and find suitable speech. It was some poor damn PA. (laughs) Yep. Yep, it was definitely a PA. 
make Terence Dix do it. He's the assistant story editor at this time. <laughs> Get working assistants. And of course, we also come across another fictional character, Rapunzel. Bit of a class snob, just saying. Yep. <laughs> Are you a prince? Again, she's trying to fit within the context of her story, and that's mm-hmm. what her story is. I thought it was funny before he even gets up to Rapunzel, is it showing the soldier like continuing clawing <laughs> yeah. at the rocks? <laughs> that's not doing anything. I think it's fantastic. It, it really makes me laugh. The soldiers don't have a lot of agency compared to some of the other characters. Because they're truly the minions of the master of this place. And, you know, it's kind of obvious when they just continue to hack at things, even though it's not doing anything. Yeah, poor soldiers. But, you know, they're wind-up automatons, so they probably don't have feelings. So Jamie gets up into the tower and he goes looking around and he's seeing all the different books that are listed of where things are. And I saw Don Quixote and I was like, I wish we had gotten Don Quixote in this whole thing. (laughs) Oh my God, that would have been amazing. I just love that whole little sequence of him like walking around that little place and trying to figure things out. Yeah, and I really like how the castle, like so many other things, is just a facade for something else. We already had the house that was a facade for the labyrinth. Got the castle that's the facade for something a lot more high-tech. I just think it's kind of really, really cool and almost reminds me of Disneyland, where you've got these ornate facades of buildings that really house something else. I love it. Mm -hmm. And also in fiction land, you have to have a castle. You just have to. Obviously. And it has to be at the top of cliffs and very majestic. Not very structurally sound, but majestic up on a <laughs> cliff like that. Yes. So the final fictional character we got in this episode is Medusa. Well, first off, we get Zoe wearing Jamie's vest. Oh, yeah. As they're going to meet Medusa. And I thought that was adorable. <laughs> but when we meet Medusa, she has those wonderful like stop motion snakes that I thought looked very oh, like yeah. Ray Harryhausen. Yep, yep. They did such a good job in the special effects in this serial. I mean, when you think about it just over and over again, it does not disappoint. And it is very surprising for their amount of budget and how they were able to make Medusa look that good. It's insane. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. I think that's true of so many things in this. It's like, okay, we cut budget by reusing these robots. I'm like, well, what about your unicorn? What about Medusa? They put so much effort into this. And is this where most of their budget went for season six? Because <laughs> this was made as part of season five, which oh, of yeah. course had the helicopter chase in Fury. It had the the beach chase in Enemy of the World. I mean, this show just seems to have a much bigger budget in the fifth production block. That actually reminds me, I will never forgive myself that we could have called Enemy of the World a view to a kilt and didn't. (laughs) And I take personal responsibility for that. And I'm sorry, audience, I let you down. Moving on. (laughs) Maybe there'll be a a future opportunity for some spy-like shenanigans, Don. It's too late, man. It's over. So Medusa and Zoe's refusal to acknowledge her non-existent leads us into episode four. I found it interesting that that was the thing that she couldn't accept as being fiction. I think it's because it touched her. Yeah, I thought that was so creepy. I'd never noticed before. Maybe it's because I'm watching it on a much larger screen than I'd ever seen this one on before. But I'd never noticed that she actually touches Zoe's face. That is creepy as hell. See, I think it falls into the idea of I've had this experience as a child or 
Anytime, you know, things go bump in the night. Sometimes, no matter how ridiculous, if something terrifies you, just something spooks you, even though you know that whatever you think in your crazy imagination of what it could be, that it has no basis in reality, sometimes it's hard to turn our reptile brain off and say, no, there's that's nothing to be afraid of. That doesn't really exist. And I think maybe that's the case they're arguing here for Zoe. It's not that seeing is believing, it's that believing is seeing. Once mm-hmm. that idea is in your head, that's when it's got you. I also love how we've got this with Medusa juxtaposed with Jamie reading the fake news about what's going on. (laughs) And the Doctor knows how to defeat Medusa, but Jamie sees it as the Doctor killing her with the sword, which is not very Doctor-ish. The Doctor rewrites the script, so to speak. Does. That's where we start to begin what is now the back half of the serial where things start to get meta. We start playing with the idea of being aware that we're writing the story as we go along, which opens up so many possibilities. And it's kind of funny that we only have two episodes to really deal with it instead of the majority of the serial. So it's funny you should mention that a couple of the various critics of the show that I read, and it's it's not just one, it's several different ones, suggest that maybe this was hinting at an origin for the Doctor. Gulliver does call him a traitor, and he seems Hmm. to know the rules of the land of fiction. So maybe he was originally from here, and the narrative we have been seeing for the last five seasons is being written from here. I know who you're talking about. I disagree with the hypothesis, but I do find it interesting nonetheless. I know you know I'm talking about Sandifer, but um, Tatwood and Lawrence Miles also pursue it a little bit in about time. They probably came up with it before. The Doctor just seems, he doesn't seem like he knows, he seems like he figures it out. And that's a big difference. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but I can see where it comes from. I know, nevertheless, it's a a fun concept to play Mm -hmm. around with in your head. Yeah. So we also have the return of Gulliver after Jamie trips an alarm. And this time he doesn't give Jamie up. And we finally see the white robots again after two episodes of them being conspicuously absent. You seem so excited. (laughs) I really like them. I think they're really creepy. They're a little bulky, but I like them better than the quarks. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know until recently that those costumes were reused from Out of the Unknown. I thought they were designed specially for this serial. Doesn't that make it better, though? Yeah. Because even the robots are from fiction. Yeah, it's so cool. Which, does Out of the Unknown exist in the Doctor Who universe? Ooh, mind blown. Apparently so. Now, if they'd been arrested by the guys from Zed Cars at the end, it would have died. <laughs> One day we'll get to a point where we can't joke about Zed Cars anymore. But today is not that day. <laughs> I don't know. There might be one person who's older and knew who and it's, oh, hey, once upon a time I was in Zed Cars. <laughs> I think Donald Sumter was in Zed Cars and he was in uh, Capaldi's second season. So. There you go. <laughs> Let's talk about the carcass. Oh, boy. <laughs> the name could be better. The name could be better. I'm dead guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Zekarkus. I don't see that name on a plaster on the front of a comic book selling. Oh. Well, I don't know why. What's really interesting about it is I like that it fits the construct of what his fiction is. So it seemed interesting that I think the carcass alluded to in the comics is if you can defeat the carcass, then he has not be your minion, but he needs to help you out afterwards because it kind of owes you a debt. Yeah. And so I like that they kind of kept that true to the story so that well zoe becomes a badass and can defeat carcass apparently and so that way you know and in the next episode they conveniently have someone to help them out yeah he can 
guide them to the castle and I'm guessing help them move furniture if the need arrives and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the carcass's only weakness is getting flipped. That, that is Zoe's key move. To be fair, they needed to add, I think, something for Zoe to talk about that no one else really knew about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anyone else get kind of vibes of a, a parody of the 60s Batman serial? <laughs> the fight choreography, yeah. The fight choreography. And when he showed up, you got that explosion motif. It wasn't an explosion, but you, you know what I mean? Like that cartoony. When he popped up. I was so distracted by the not quite great yet also super awesome muscle suit. <laughs> yeah. like, I, I don't think human anatomy works that way, but you know. What, have you never heard of a 24-pack before? <laughs> it was the stuff up top that was covering his pecs in a way that seemed unnatural and really uncomfortable. <laughs> and then additionally in this sequence, we have Zoe fighting him, which was very, very Emma Peel. So we've got her in a cat suit mm-hmm. and doing some kind of martial arts. I love it. Very, very Avengers. Well, I'm looking forward. I know you were speaking of the Emma Peel, John Steed Avengers, but I am looking forward to the carcass being used at the MCU in this future sometime. <laughs> yes. He's actually the villain in WandaVision. Nailed it. What a great twist that would be. <laughs> Who's going? Who is that? You're in the land of fiction. The carcass. What I'm saying. So it might not be part of the mcu but doctor who has been in the marvel comic books before so that that, there's a compelling argument that a crossover could happen see the doctor on the big screen next to spider-man let's just take the carcass as the optimal villain for the mcu (laughs) (laughs) so we also i think we get another interaction with jamie and gulliver and i have now decided that for this season i want to see a jamie and gulliver travels (laughs) Ooh. I thought you were going to mention the doctor using yet another silly accent. <laughs> yes, there's that, but I'm going with my continuous, hey, big finish, nudge, nudge, we should do this. It's such a shame that Bernard Horsfall is no longer with us, because that would be wonderful. He was in Big Finish at one point, by the way, not as Gulliver, huh. as a completely different character. But yes, he did do Big Finish before he passed away. This is also where I think it gets even more meta. By the time the Doctor gets inside, Jamie shows him the ticker tape and he realised that if they had followed what was on the ticker tape, they would have become fictional. Of course, they already are to us, but I thought that was like a really, really cool idea. I said, I have feelings that my interpretation of this may be different because I don't think they're really becoming fictional so much as they're having a loss of free will. Yeah. Which we'll get into that. In episode five, it's it's very similar, but I don't necessarily think that what happens in this serial is exactly as it's presented on the tin. All right. I'm looking forward to that philosophical debate. Yes. So Zoe sets off the alarm and the doctor allows themselves to be captured and we finally get to meet the master properly. And he's just so happy to see them. Yeah. <laughs> he seems very, very Victorian. He's a very cheerful chappy, but he's obviously post-Victorian, but... <laughs> And is the the writer of Captain Jack Harkaway? Harkaway, yes. Harkaway. Mm. Did anyone else like? Wait, what? Okay, Stephen Moffat and RTD. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Is that I'm I'm going to write a Doctor Who story. I'm going to put this character in the story, and I'm going to try to get RTD to play him as the writer of Captain Jack Harkaway, the creator <laughs> of. I love it. So he's also very clearly being controlled by the machinery that he's hooked up to, which is. Pretty cool and creepy in itself. 
he has some semblance of free will, but some semblance of being controlled. Yeah, because when the intelligence, not the great one, much like the master, but not that one, <laughs> talks through him, his voice gets a lot more robotic and stilted. Yep. And this is where we also find out the end game. He wants the doctor to take his place. Um, and if he's not going to do it willingly, he's going to be forced to do it. He's trying to hire and train his job replacement. <laughs> And then there's a statement about, all right, everyone, we need to stick together. And what happens? Jamie and Zoe immediately leave. <laughs> That's adventure serial code for let's split up. <laughs> We've got to stay together. <laughs> and they keep running into the white robots and they're eventually pushed into the book, which leads us to the cliffhanger. Yeah, the pressure is put on the doctor. Don, this takes us into episode five, and this is probably a good time to talk about your thoughts since Jamie and Zoe at this point become fiction. Yeah, I like I said, and I'm sure that there have been people coming back to this and treating it as if it's a literal land of fiction. I don't care about the expanded universe stuff. I don't think it's a land of fiction. I think it's a land of illusion. Or if you're a Genesis fan, a land of confusion. But the point remains, hey. when they're in the book, there are other versions of them that pop out that are fictional, quote unquote. They don't have any free will. Not that they're fictional characters from a story. They're just completely under the thrall and control of the intelligence that rules this. And that's part of what I find interesting about the whole plan here. You've got this intelligence from either a different plane of existence, a different dimension, whatever you want to call it, that's very, very smart, but not creative at all. So it has to find a human being to reach into and kind of control and use that creativity to shape this illusory world. And it wants to find one that is so intensely creative that it can make a world that's completely distracting so that it can remove all the humans from Earth to live there in this imaginary fictional world. And it can have the real world for itself which is probably the nicest way i've ever seen of taking over the world it's the matrix <laughs> yeah it's the matrix <laughs> i say my head hurts a little yeah that's actually all from said what he wanted to do we're going to make this illusory world and then we're going to take the people off of earth so we can have it that is my only criticism of the serial is that i believe the motivations of the villain are rather pedestrian for everything else being so fantastical i don't know what else the villain's motives would have been but the old take over the world thing especially when we're in a place of limbo so to speak not even in reality why would a non-reality being care about a place like the earth so the one thing later in the episode that does kind of confuse me if they're not literally becoming fiction there's the moment where they push themselves out of the book mm -hmm. they're almost in two places at once they are because their physical bodies were in the book the entire time Okay. Basically trapped. And the evil Jamie and Zoe, we'll call them, they were out there when they were completely under the control of the master. No, not that one. To do their bidding to defeat the doctor. Yes, that one. <laughs> so we got really deep there. I'm going to go a completely different direction. Are you going to make a fart joke? No, not a <laughs> fart joke. But the fun with Carcass and Rapunzel. Mm -hmm. I really loved that. I love that it was problem solving. It was, okay, I need to get down. Oh, I have to use your hair? Well, what are we going to, like, I don't want to pull your hair out. And then Carcass is like, I'll hold part of it. And I'm like, this is great. Teamwork. I like Rabun's going, oh, yeah, sure. Everyone else uses it. Go ahead. <laughs> 
I love the little comedy beat when the doctor asks the carcass to open up that window for him and he just lifts it off and goes to hand it to the doctor and is like, this is what you want? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, no, I want to get down there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting. There's almost this little calm before the storm with the doctor almost writing himself into fiction. He goes back on top and he's kind of sitting around with Gulliver and the children and almost lamenting what's going on in the position that they're in and, and the hopelessness of it all. And then Jamie and Zoe turn up. With a brand new TARDIS. Yeah. So how does he get encased so easily once he walks into it? It's funnier that way. <laughs> Fair. So we already talked about the Master Brain's plan to bring Earth under its control. This seems a little sudden. It doesn't seem to have been the game plan, the whole story, which the way you phrased it, Don, it makes sense, but I feel like it's just kind of been thrown in there. We, we know that he wanted the doctor to take over and it's because he's getting old and we don't necessarily know why. And I agree that it doesn't seem like the type of story that should have a, oh, I'm going to take over the world kind of thing. That's not the part I like about it. What I really like is using a human being's creativity and having to do that for this entity to get itself into reality. It reminds me of, yeah, the great intelligence. It especially reminds me of the big evil brain thing in um, the web planet. Yep. There's something, I think this word gets overused, but very Lovecraftian about that to me, because it's basically wanting a portal into our universe <laughs> through the creativity of humankind. Yeah, which I really like. Just invading the Earth seems a little sudden. Well, maybe it needs a place to put its stuff. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it just needs the explanation of why. Okay, mm -hmm. great. You're another person who wants to take over the Earth, but why? Because we, because we can. I think it's more interesting if it's actually trying to get the people there so it can feed off of all their creativity as well. I would dig that. I would dig that. I would yeah. argue that maybe we think about how... We always really seem to like, even on serials that we don't really care for, we always seem to like the setup in the first one because it's a world of mystery and we don't know where things are going to go. We have a good plot here. We have something that they can battle. Why do we need to know what the ultimate plan is for the for the master? Why not just leave it a mystery? I think that would be good. Fill it in the blank. Yeah, I think they could have left it as we want the doctor to take over for this other guy because he's old. Yeah, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Don't need don't need the extra bits. But we get this excellent duel it's a good old-fashioned story off oh uh, it's like kids on a <laughs> playground isn't it it was so glorious i loved them trying to like one-up each other and be like all right here's a different fighting style and your person can't handle this and it oh it was beautiful anyone who says they never did this as a five-year-old with their friends in the playground i don't believe that we've all done this at some point oh yeah and it's magnificent and it's one of the few uses of incidental music in this entire story and it's wonderful yeah it works so well so we've got the carcass, we've got Serrano de Bergerac, we've got D'Artagnan, and it's it, it feels like a kind of classic black and white swashbuckling adventure movie. And then we get Blackbeard and Sir Lancelot. Oh my goodness, it's exciting. And then they cheat and unhook the doctor because they realize that maybe it wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> it really reminds me, actually, of, I think it was the Web of Fear. It was either the Web of Fear or... or abominable snowman where his plan was basically to allow himself to get hooked in and, mm -hmm. and disrupt it once he's in there and that's exactly what happens here i love it well this was a mistake let's destroy the doctor i love how upset the master is about that though he begs against the master brain because he wants his freedom poor guy i actually feel really sorry for him by the end of it 
Yeah, because he's just a guy. He was just trying to write his little stories. Yeah, he just got plucked away from Earth and somehow ended up here and with nobody else. And you just have to constantly write stories by yourself. Because when he gets all unplugged, they press all the buttons and everything goes bonkers. And he's like, but what am I doing here? He just completely doesn't understand what just happened to him for however long he's been there. And that's so sad. Very sad. Isn't that basically what Jamie does again in the Web of Fear? Get Getting in there, pressing all the buttons to just make stuff go kind of wrong? To overwhelm the system because it's you're putting in so much information and doing things that it's not supposed to do, yeah. And then the white robots just start destroying everything, which then reminded me of the evil of the Daleks and that final battle <laughs> between the Daleks. I, I love the little references back to previous stories that we've already seen. It, it feels like it's it's drawing on the show's own mythology, which in itself is fairly meta. It kind of makes me think a little bit more about the white robots. Are they independent entities outside of the master brain in this dimension and they're there to just erase things and bring them back to like nothingness, just like an eraser? I keep thinking of that Stephen King story, The Langoliers. I think it was The Langoliers. Oh, the the bad CGI mouths eat reality. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Pac-Man, the flesh Pac-Mans yeah. come around and eat up stale time. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's how the white robots are a little I bit here. See, I think this is just, it's a, a different dimension, a different plane of reality. I mean, it works off of computers and things being printed out. There's There's real stuff there. So I, I think yeah. while it's based on, like I said, public domain fiction, there's some component of it that's actually corporeal and exists and everything else is illusory. Imagine a world without copyright infringement. <laughs> In fact, if for my summary, if I were, were talented and could sing, I would have done some riff on Pure Imagination from Willy Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're musically talented, Don. Just, I don't know if you can sing. I'm not a singer, especially not just raw into the mic on this thing. Anyway. So we end this with the destruction of the master computer, which sends everyone back to reality. And the TARDIS reforms much in the same way as it was when it broke up, which leads me to the question of, was it all just a dream? No. No, because the guy who was the, the master of that place is with them. Well, is he in the TARDIS? We don't know. We just know he gets sent home. So was he returned to where he came from? Probably. No, I'm not going to entertain a just a dream hypothesis. No. <laughs> no. Bad Anthony, no biscuit. I think we call that the Jacob's Ladder <laughs> scenario. Because I want a biscuit. Nope. Oh. It would have been really funny. I just, that's it. That is, we didn't talk about this earlier. The director did an excellent job in the second episode of doing the, uh, oh, uh, there's somebody and they walk just behind something and then the person will fall up and, oh, they're gone. You <laughs> oh, know, yeah. That little gag. They did, they did a good job with it. And I think that would have been fantastic. The Simpsons did a similar joke. But if they did the same thing here with the, the person who was the master, let's just say, like, like, oh, the master. Yeah, he was right over there. <gasps> he's gone. Oh, wait, actually, no, he's just right over there. <laughs> okay, well, that takes us to the end of our story discussion, which means we move into our scores. And I know I'm going to get a sigh for saying this, but Julie gets to go first this episode. <sighs> oh, oh, you meant from her. <laughs> wow, thanks, Don. I appreciate that. This is obviously the episode that blew my mind the most in that half the time I was, what the hell is going on? But it's so well done. It's so well shot. They added all these weird quirks into it and pretty much all of them work. And it was just a lot of fun. And again, after all the base under siege that we got and 
season five and then the ridiculousness that was the dominators this was a thing of beauty to see something so weird tried and executed so well the only real thing that i agree with is the the biggest issue is the why was the intelligence trying to take over the earth that really didn't make any sense but really everything is really well done so i'm gonna give it 8.5 scottish unicorns out of 10 Ooh. Okay, Riley. I agree with Julie. This serial is just straight up fun. I can't think of a better way to describe it. It's just fun. It reminds me of the classic Star Trek episodes, Shore Leave and Cat's Paw, where everything is just very trippy and you'll have something where you'll have a character from an entirely different story or from a different piece of literature just show up out of nowhere. And it's just great. Trippy imagery as well. A lot of creepiness but some lightheartedness. It's a fun adventure. And it also delves in a little bit of being a little meta towards the end, which is enjoyable, which I think could have been discussed more. But this is a fun serial, not a deep thinking serial. And that's fine. It doesn't need to be. Julia is also right. What could be improved? We don't need the whole wants to take over the earth thing. Unimportant. Doesn't need to happen. The story is good enough on its own. So it's an enjoyable ride. I give it nine creepy children saying riddles out of 10. Oh man, that's what I was going to go for. <laughs> All right, Don, over to you. I really love the serial. I had saw this a long, long time ago, and I think it probably gave me probably higher expectations for what the second Dr. Arrow was going to be like. But watching it after going through all of the prior seasons, all of the bases under siege, all that stuff, it's it's even better because it's fun. It's creative. It's very Doctor Who without trying really, really hard to be Doctor Who by throwing in Daleks and Cybermen and going, look, look, we're Doctor Who. It's just just doing it. You get a return of that sort of kinder horror elements from Celestial Toymaker. You get some of the Lovecraftian stuff from prior stories that we saw where you've got big, weird, creepy things from beyond the stars. It's just a wonderful serial. And I'm going to give it nine and a half sparkly cat suits out of ten. <laughs> well, that brings it to me. And I have a huge amount of love for this. I think I've probably told you all before that when I was about six years old, my dad brought home three Doctor Who stories on VHS, and that was what made me fall in love with the show. This was one of them. So this is one of the very first Doctor Who stories I ever saw around 27, 28 years ago. And I've watched the hell out of it since, and it's never disappointed me. It's never got old. It's never got stale. It's fun. There's a ton of nostalgia behind it for me, and I really, really adore it. And I'm trying right now in my head as I'm talking, which is probably why I'm rambling a little, to talk myself down from giving it the show's very first 10 out of 10. That's how much I love this. Can anyone come up with a reason why I shouldn't? <laughs> you, you can do what I did and do minus 0.5 for the take over the earth thing, but you know, yeah. go for it. All right. So for because of how fun this story is, because of the way it twists and turns, the little horror elements, the metaness of it, this one gets... 10 out of 10 anti-molecular ray disintegrator guns from me. Yes! Boom! We did it! <laughs> we did it! Our first 10, yes. I think it's just wonderful. I love this story so hard. 
And that's the end of the podcast. We have our first 10. That was, yeah. that was the entire point. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> We're done. That will be our last episode. We're done. <laughs> All right. We are out of time, as usual, at this point. We'll be back next time around when we tackle the very first half of an invasion story in The Invasion. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, One for the Dads, was recorded on Wednesday the 20th of January 2021. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Watchers4D. You can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if reality is getting too hot, you can always escape to the land of fiction. I did that last Thursday.